Hello, Pip. Hello, Chris. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Hello. We're doing a, a surprising little... Little Grey Cells. Little Grey Cells podcast of our own. That's right. <laughs> a little spin-off podcast here called Little Grey Cells. This is season one, episode one of a new mini pod where we talk through every question mark <laughs> episode of the Granada TV series, <laughs> Agatha Christie's Poirot. Well, it's ITV. I think it stops being Granada after a while. Mm. I can't remember. Anyway. Well, for the time being, Granada. It's the David Suchet Poirot. The David Suchet Poirot. The proper Poirot. <laughs> which is hard to say. So, yeah, what <laughs> we're going to do... Pick up a Poirot. Pick up a Poirot. We are going to follow the adventures of our very favourite manic pixie dream detective... Um, from these weird early seasons to the weird later seasons. And but weird in different ways. Mm, obviously, I appreciate this is a bit of a departure from the, until this date, strictly gaming and hobby-related <laughs> output of The Great and Crowbar. This is my hobby. This is, yeah. Just keeping up with Poirot. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And so, you know, I kind of invite you to open your minds and follow us on this journey. Watch along. <laughs> As we yes. attempt over the course of how many episodes of Poirot are there? Um, hang on. I think there's 35 discs in that collection. Great. Over the course of the next 35 discs of the DVD <laughs> box set we've got. <laughs> as we attempt to unpack exactly why we both love Hercule Poirot quite and as much as we do. Had you watched much of it before I charged into your, <laughs> <laughs> into into my your life, house? Armed with a box of Poirot. I've actually got two poirot box sets but i bought one of them before they had made all of the poirots i just couldn't wait that was years <laughs> ago and so now i've got an incomplete poirot under my bed at home but think it like it was complete at the time mm. and now i've got the actual complete poirot a definitive poirot mm. i think like everybody in the world had seen a certain amount of poirot sort of ambiently <laughs> but i didn't really come to appreciate him as a character mm. until we started watching it quite a lot mm. uh, so what we've chosen to do is go right back to the beginning uh to season one episode one because you've never seen any of the first season have you no very early pyro is quite different but we'll get to that <laughs> but one thing that occurred, jumped out to you actually when we started watching so this first episode mm-hmm. will will cover the adventure of the clapham cook indeed <laughs> which is not the first pyro story well it's not uh, like, chronologically, it felt weird because The Mysterious Affair of S- at Styles is the first Poirot novel. And like, in that, it, I mean, it, it stuck out as a starting point to mm. me, obviously, because it's when Poirot is just settling in England and he sort of meets up with Hastings for the first time since then. Mm. And, you know, that, that's the point at which they start, you know, palling around and, I suppose that you can start a Pyro story almost anywhere and you can start watching Pyro anywhere because Pyro is a sort of both a kind of enigmatic little rock at the center of all of these stories <laughs> in that he's the most and least consistent thing about all of them. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Pyro is unchangeable, but it is mercurial. Name, yes. yes. Like, so th- if you are kind of baffled about this and you need some grounding, obviously Pyro is a detective in London in the 1930s or 20s? What these are? Well, 
I think Tens? the first novel was written in the mid-teens, mm. the mid-19-teens. Um, and then, like, it spans, you know, up until relatively late. I think most of them tend to be in the 30s-ish. Right. It's sort of the interwar period. It's it's London. It's but obviously Brit- there's some that are mm. a lot later. And- it's the sort of, you know, the English society of the time. And at the centre of this English society where people are constantly being murdered. At dinner parties. At dinner parties and in hedge mazes <laughs> and in banks and so on. At the centre of this world is a small Belgian man. Mm, who a very is particular. Extremely particular, very fastidious, very smart, kind of a dickhead, but wonderfully well, so. I mean... Well, we can discuss this as the series goes on. But yeah, but what that means is you can kind of jump so into this... So many peccadillos. He has a lot of peccadillos. You can jump into this anywhere. And moustaches. Yeah, well, he has one moustache. No, he always refers to his moustaches. That's true. Left and right, I presume. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we'll jump into Pyro's first adventure on television, mm-hmm. The Adventure of the Clapham Cook, which is interesting because the whole point of this adventure is it's Poirot taking on a case that is beneath him. Which, if you were, you know, if you were watching this from episode one, you had no idea who Poirot was. You wouldn't get why that's a thing, right? I also, if you're watching this in the modern day, the notion that a woman has vanished and this is beneath the, the notice of a detective is maybe very specific to the time. Well, I think they set it up by having Hastings. I love Hastings. Captain Hastings is there, played by mm. Hugh Fraser. Wonderful Captain so, Hastings. Captain Hastings is Pyro's... Well, so in any other detective sort of fiction... He's he, kind of like the Watson. He would be if he did anything at all he does he helps sometimes yeah well he has a so what i'm saying he is, chases after things when pro asks him to okay i'm gonna put it this way what does Poirot, what does hastings offer that a labrador retriever wouldn't he sometimes remembers things and tells them to Poirot and doesn't see their significance but the fact that he has actually retained them and presented them is something that's If you were a television Poirot. writer, could you replace that scene with the Hastings the dog dropping a newspaper at Poirot's feet that happens to have the pertinent information printed on it? But I don't think that the dog would look quite as, you know, like injured or mortified or, you know, he's got such an amazing line in facial expressions of various types of put-outness. I'm not saying that we replace Hastings. What I'm saying is, by detective sidekick standards, he is remarkably useless in fact we can we can <laughs> but Poirot really likes it and he kind of brings out little playfulness in Poirot you know mm. like when he's just you know he's he's being a bit dim sometimes but Poirot kind of likes his company and yeah and you know he's kind someone of... for Poirot to talk to but he's very much on a different well so he's also very proper and things where Poirot just isn't he's like you know, mm. it it doesn't occur to him to do some of the slightly sneaky things that Poirot doesn't mind doing. Yes, Poirot can be underhanded, whereas Hastings is extremely loyal and well, and takes everything at face value in the way a dog might. Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is, so the other point in context before we dig into the meat of this episode. And explain what it actually is, yes. Mm, yeah, <laughs> is that obviously Poirot is sort of an outsider in, in English broadly mm. british but 
every you know uh you know as as in this episode anyone who's british but not english tends to be the help and the principal people getting murdered or doing murders tend to be english aristocrats a lot of the time also you know people who get various kinds of either stigma or you know sort of exoticism you know it's kind of Mm. like there there are um foreign princes occasionally things like that and yes but predominantly the lens of the show is the british aristocracy really and actresses american actresses american actresses yeah they're always trouble (laughs) but hastings is kind of like poirot's pet british person right because Pyro yeah. is smarter than all of them. That is the point. Well, yeah, but he's kind of smarter than anyone in a given room. He likes to think so. But Hastings is the one that he takes with him. <laughs> and then, and then <laughs> there are, there are people who orbit Pyro. Um, so there's Miss Lemon, yeah. who is Pyro's actual secretary, even though he makes Hastings do most of his secretary work. <laughs> even what's Hastings job? He's an army captain. Well, he's retired. He's retired. <laughs> exactly. And all he does is follow Pyro around. Well, I think he's quite well to do, but he does make some stupid investments as well. Mm, yeah. So. And just hang around in Pyro's house, follow Pyro places. Well, yeah, I mean, you've got to have a hobby. <laughs> um, and there's also Inspector Jap, who is the, uh, the chief Scotland of Scotland Yard. Sc- Scotland Yard. Um, who is the sort of, uh, salt of the earth, you know, boots on the ground detective, constantly sort of, not flummoxed by Pyro's methods, but also... Um, well, he has to go by the book and like does. actually get he, warrants for things. You, you trust that he could actually get things done if Pyro wasn't there. It just wouldn't... It'd it be would slower and less spectacular. I wouldn't involve a dining room scene where things get explained. Um, whereas Hastings... He's the sort of person that would haul you into the cells and shout, Well, look here! But like, also try and puzzle it out, you know? Mm, He's not yes, dumb. Exactly. Whereas Hastings, I think, would just walk around in small circles and chew the furniture or something <laughs> if you left him alone for too long. He'd just read the paper in that way that he does, mm. reading bits out at odd moments. So this episode begins, as a lot of the early Pyro episodes do, with the original intro sequence, obviously, which I wanted to dwell on briefly because it's really weird. Oh, you mean the Art Deco dream sequence? Yeah, so later Pyro episodes don't do this, but the new, the, the early ones have a sequence which opens with, a sort of beaming Poirot staring at the viewer through kind of like an Obi-Wan Kenobi force ghost, blue glowy fractal art deco shattered glass. Before a train thunders Vignette past thing. And then a cartoon and... train goes past and then he vanishes into some sort of illuminated well, streetlights and No, before his hat. that happens, he sort of does this weird thing where he sidles off stage as if he's been caught doing something mm. naughty. And then he wanders up this well-lit sort of... St- stylized street light thing and tips his hat but it's almost like that's his you know going towards the light thing i always yeah. think it's kind of poirot's death sequence <laughs> in some ways yeah like, he's died um Aww. but that's not no that's not the case he's just this is i don't know what it represents then they probably did right to stop it out beginning of this episode is a very it goes on a while uh, yeah a man very intensely tying some rope around a piece of old luggage Mm. which uh, will be very important later. And almost, just by virtue of seeing that scene, gives most of the plot away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think maybe they're trading on the fact that you need a teaser, like a cold Mm. open kind of thing. But also that probably or presumably you'll have stopped paying attention or you won't have, like, obviously you won't Mm. have put everything together. Yes, although I would say that later on this episode kind of... 
um, maybe gives the reader, the, the viewer, some opportunities to kind of jump ahead of Poirot. Well, I guess it didn't do bit. Columbo any harm, no, showing you who'd true. done it at yeah, the start. That's true. I so. think Poirot's never been totally concerned with the the who quite so much as the Poirot of it all. I basically just watch it to see what Paro will do. So a cook has gone missing. Yes. So, well, that's skipping ahead a little bit because the actual, our introduction to Pyro as a character. Well, I thought we should, I, I thought maybe we should say what the, you know, what the theme of the episode is. Yes. Well, it's the, the adventure of the Clapham cook. Um, but we, we only find this out after Pyro, because uh, Hastings is sat in Pyro's study reading him cases from the newspaper, which include. Well, that's why I was thinking it gives you an idea of. Poirot's sense of self, you know, like the fact that, I mean, you were saying if this is someone coming to Poirot from the get go, I mean, for, from, um, you know, cold, not mm. knowing anything about him or whatever, then perhaps you wouldn't know the type of person he is or what a big deal it is that he actually takes on this domestic case. But I think when Hastings is reading out all of these fancy, you know, like, oh, someone's gone off with, like, thousands of pounds from a bank, but Poirot's like, oh, it'll only interest me if if it actually was a king's ransom, you mm. know? Whereas, you know, so it gives you the, the, the idea of the calibre of cases that he's actually looking for and entertained by at this mm. point. Well, I mean, uh, Hastings is literally reading from a newspaper that apparently is only extremely high-profile crimes. And, um, like, there's, like, a little classified section at the back. And um, Pyro is not interested in any of these. Um, but then a woman in an extremely good hat. I think she's supposed to look a bit trashy. Well, like, a it's, bit, you mm, know. Yes, yes, you're <laughs> right. You're completely right. A, wo- a posh woman in a shit hat. Mm, she's not posh. She's middle class. That's the problem. A bougie woman. Yeah. <laughs> That's part of his problem is that she comes in with her non, you know, Harrods hat mm. and her mm. non Harrods outfit having her non Harrods problems. Yeah, because Pyro's established that he has a busy day ahead of he has a little stain on his grey suit that needs buffing out and it might be time to trim his moustache. But as you say, this woman bursts into his life and Pyro isn't happy about it at all particularly when he determines that she wants him to help her find her missing cook, mm-hmm. which is obviously, obviously, obviously beneath him. Well, I thought that she would have got his attention when, you know, because he loves his dinners. Mm. He loves a good, you know, he does gourmet love a this or, you know. It's more that he's, that he's very unhappy if the food isn't good. Mm. Is is the the pyro way of expressing something? Mm. Mm. Um. So and um. Well, he so he initially rejects her request, and then he accepts it. Um. When she says, you know, a good cook's a good cook. You know, she's worth as much as any other piece of property. <laughs> um, and this is a sort of running theme of, of the, uh, at least the first half of the episode, which is people tend to look down on, well, Pyro is embarrassed about taking this case. People would think it's less than him because he is a esteemed d- detective in search of essentially a, a low value piece of property. Um, which is an amazing way of thinking about the help. <laughs> I think the thing is like, I, I've got the timeline slightly jumbled in my head, I think, because it might be because of 
this case that he is nice to people who who he thinks are lower down the social pecking order but like in my recollection he's always actually been pleasant to you know maids and cooks and servants mm. and things he always seems to sort of at least try and treat them like human beings and uh, you know maybe that's transactional because they tend to have actually seen things that other people didn't because they're actually you know paying attention or mm. they are you know or, or they are assumed to to not really exist and so you know incredibly rich people just act as if they're part of the furniture and you know they might have mm. seen something so i suppose this is the question i'm asking though is is do you think pyro takes the case because of that sympathy that he has because he does express it later in the episode as well his sympathy for working class people that he sort of feigns to not have or because he does also express embarrassment about having taken this case or do you uh, think it's because he believes her when she says that she values her cook as a cook? I think he is an incredible snob. Mm. Um, but I think that what happened in that conversation wasn't that she was the, I think that it was more that the, the tone of, is, I can't remember her name. Is it Mrs. Doyle? Mm. Something like that. Um, the tone of the, the hat lady. Mm. Um, she was, she was just bringing him up on the fact that he was being a bit of a dick, you know? Mm. Like it was, I think it was more that he actually realized that he was coming across as, as a jerk and not valuing something, you know? Mm. Um, that to, to someone else was valuable. Mm. I wonder if, I suppose my thing I wonder about in that scene is whether or not he values the same thing she does. Whether he sees her... No, I think she maybe hurt his pride. Like, his mm. sense of himself as, you know, someone who will take on a challenge, you know? Regard not regardless. Like, I, I don't really know how to explain it if that's not what you got from the scene. Well, so, the way I sort of um, read it... Because it's an interesting thing because the, so the, some of the tension of the episode hangs off this. Because at that point, he starts being, he does this later as well, starts being sort of uh, kind of obsequious to her. He, he flatters her intelligence as he speaks to her. And with Pyro, when he does things like that, you can often get a sense that he's sort of doing it to his own ends. Um, I don't know. I think I think partly this being the first episode, it hasn't quite settled into itself. So mm. everything is a lot more theatrically extreme. You know, he sort of pulls a lot of faces and has a lot of sort of extreme to camera kind of smiles or smirks or, you know, this, that and the other, whereas it ends up a lot more subtle in later Mm. seasons uh, and especially in longer episodes as well these shorter earlier ones were always a bit more kind of dramatic and in your face and you get that from the music and from the the characterization as well you know like everyone's an extreme thing they're thick or they're obsequious or they're mean or they're mm. um you know haughty or they're you know this that and the other right yeah um like no one has any subtlety like his relationship with hastings doesn't have any subtlety no you're like, right like in yeah so i don't think I, I i don't actually think that it's as worthy of interrogation because it feels more like it's them sort of trying to settle into 
who Poirot is. Mm. And that is something that more sort of shakes out over time. And so, you know, like he, he is this mixture of proud and snobbish and, you know, but also gets pulled up on it and, you know, is mm. also a human and yeah. thinks, oh, okay, maybe I'll, but that doesn't mean that he'll be happy about it. And it does, but then, you know, it, maybe that would have been a lot more subtle in a later season, but they play it entirely for, physical comedy when he tries to hide that he's mm. doing that later yeah. on so yeah yeah i just thought it's, it's an interesting ambiguity because i don't think it's something that they settle on like where pyro sympathies are in this episode you might be right that that's just due to a lack of kind of sophistication in that characterization at this early in the show it's not a deep episode no it isn't it isn't <laughs> um i think there's yeah i think maybe some there's some depth there if you want to go looking for it but i agree that maybe the rest of the episode doesn't support that quest um but anyway so pyro accepts the case and is whisked away to Clapham Common, mm-hmm. on the on the outskirts of which is a suburban street where Hat Lady lives. Eighty eight Prince Albert Terrace. Yes, we've forgotten her name, but that is her road. <laughs> yeah. Um, the um the car that they arrived in, I believe its registration was ALE one six five. Great. <laughs> Who's the real detective? It's Pip. <laughs> I'm, yeah, not. So, and Hastings goes with Pyro for some reason. Um, and they well, arrive. You would, wouldn't you? Yes. I think he asks him to. Come, Hastings. That's, you well, know, yeah. You no, obviously Hastings hasn't got anything better to do, so. Yeah. Um, and so they, uh, they interrogate the, the Scottish maid to no avail. Annie. Annie. To, to no avail whatsoever. And from a hat lady, we, the only character's name we can't remember. That, it was. Is it not Mrs. Doyle? I don't think it might be. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. It might be. <laughs> it doesn't sound right to my brain. No. Um, but they also determine that the uh, the household has a a lodger, a twenty eight year old lodger, <laughs> and twenty eight by one yeah five hundred and when and when the door opens uh, when they go to visit this man to ask him a question. The door, two things happen at once that make this amazing. One is that no man in a crime show has ever been more thoroughly betrayed by his soundtrack than that guy at that moment. Because <laughs> as soon as Pyro knocks on this guy's upper story door, which incidentally follows quite a long sequence of Pyro climbing some stairs, which is something Pyro does not like to have to do <laughs> if, if Pyro can avoid it. Um, a cello kicks in on the soundtrack, a fucking ominous as hell cello that keeps playing quite loudly over the following scene, regardless of the tone of what's happening. There's just a spooky cello in the background when for the time that this man is on screen. And this is Mr. Simpson, the lodger, who is, we're told, about 28 years old, but is played by a 40-year-old actor <laughs> um, who uh, nerds may remember, I didn't, but I looked it up after the fact, as General Crix Maydine from Star Wars Return of the Jedi. <laughs> um, so... Uh, yeah, so it, it clearly, transparently, a, a 40-year-old man um, who was alone in his attic room reading the paper in bed. What's that character in the Jedi, then? He's a rebel general. Is he in one of the ships or something? Yeah, he's, he, he coordinates the briefing where they decide how the attack is going to go down in, Revenge of the, in Return of the Jedi. Right, okay. Yeah, it's a thing. 
great. It's a thing. It's a Star Wars thing. He's in Star Wars. I mean, we're talking about a show that used to have a lot of British character actors from the 80s and 90s, and a lot of those people were in Star Wars. Fair. Okay. But, so this is going to keep happening. Dennis Lawson's going to show up at some point. Mm. Right? Um, so, uh, and, um, and so initially he sort of says, I don't know anything about it, except for a pertinent detail which comes through, which is that he works for the Belgravia Bank, which is the same bank that lost all that money at the beginning of the episode when, when Hastings was reading things from the paper that Paro was rejecting. Mm-hmm. So uh, Hastings perks up at this a little bit, but Paro doesn't seem that interested. And they, they turn to leave, but at which point Paro does what I can only describe as a kind of sexy Columbo rebound. He gets up in Simpson's personal space. Very much so. They are inches from kissing. Mm. And then he asks him essentially, what is there to do of an evening round here? Yeah, as a, as a single gentleman in Clapham Common. <laughs> <laughs> and they just look meaningfully at each other. Well, and then pointedly Pyro says, the theatre perhaps? <laughs> um, but obviously Pyro has a line of reasoning here, which will become clear much later. But, uh, and he sort of, uh, he meaning Simpson sort of kind of guffaws Britishly and refuses to answer the question. Uh, he said, well, so it's like, oh yes, I suppose. And then, so is this the thing you do? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Basically. Um, and, uh, at this point, uh, Paro confides to Hastings that he is now pretty intrigued in the case. Because the landscape of it, it doesn't make sense. There's so many contradictory factors. The cook left, but then she summoned her baggage. But where did the baggage go? Well, that's what Annie said. So she wasn't entirely useless. That's true. Annie wasn't entirely useless. I apologize. <laughs> Maybe now I'm the one who's dismissive of mm. the help. You were just sidetracked by her accent and the fact that she and Hastings were egging each other on to further flights of fancy. That's true. So... Yeah, I was also distracted in that scene, particularly by the sort of six spoons that Pyro sat down with mm. that aren't referenced and don't come up again. <laughs> oh, no, I haven't picked up on that. You go for the number plates. I'll remember how many spoons there were. Okay. Um, but having just confessed his um, attachment to the case, Pyro then the next morning, sort of cut to Pyro dressing room next morning, receiving a letter to say that he's off the case. He's furious. Paru is outraged and, and obviously immediately rejects the case as a stupid case that he didn't want anyway. No, he rejects the payoff and says that he's uh, going to mm. investigate it anyway. So the opposite. Well. He's like, you can take your guinea. I will take my own guineas. I have guineas. <laughs> and then is absolutely stomping around the living room while Miss Lemon and Hastings are just like... Oh. I guess what I'm saying is, um, it's a, it's a stroppy. You get to see a little bit of. Oh, he has an absolute tantrum. Yeah. Mardi Poirot. Yeah. Yeah. In response to this rejection. Um, he's got a right cob on. <laughs> uh, at, at this point, all I wrote was, what does Hastings do? <laughs> he's there as, as a companion. Well, because Hastings says, well, you he know, was going to go to the races. Yeah, he says he but, says to I mean, he says to he says to Poirot like, well, I was thinking about going to the races, 
And well, because part well, of this gives... is after he's dismissed Miss Lemon to go and put a notice in as many papers as she can, and she gets a bit sniffy about. Well, I don't think that the cook will read the Times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just another person to get a little bit classist in here. Um, uh, but yes, and then so having Pyro having then dismissed his secretary, Hastings says, "Well, I thought I might pop to the races." To, to which Pyro says, "No, <laughs> there will be no pop. There will be no pop. You will do what I say, which is to phone every." service industry and and servant agency in the country mm-hmm. and ask if any of them have recently placed a woman matching Eliza Eliza Dunn. Yep. Yeah. The name of our Clapham cook. Um He looks most perturbed. Pyro, most put out rather. He does look most put out, particularly when Pyro then says, But I shall be the one who pops to the City of London. And he goes to visit the Belgravia Bank, where he visits the bank manager, Mr D. Cameron. D.E. Cameron. Yeah. David Cameron, the bank manager, um, who, uh, like most bank managers and businessmen in Pyro, occupies a very dark oak-lined room and wears all black and speaks in quite a deep, sort of resonant, mildly sinister voice, even though, spoilers, this is his only scene mm. in the show, mm. in this episode, and indeed the, probably the show. Hmm. Mm. So obviously they've recently lost some money, but that's not why Pyro's there. They, some of the actors pop up back again in Pyro because there's only so many actors in the UK. That's true. Yeah, it's a bit like Game of Thrones. You know, just as a sponge for soaking up British character actors. I think the porter who shows up later crops up in a later Pyro as well. Mm. 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 Well, later Pyro is when we're going to reel into actors what have been in something else. Right now, oh, it's God, a, yeah. yeah, it's going to get real intense. Well, a lot of the ones that are in the early episodes, you'll have maybe vaguely become familiar with their faces just if you watch a lot of British TV of Mm. an evening, you know? So they'll usually have done a loop of, you know, The Bill and Midsummer Murders and A Touch of Frost and Lewis and, you know, basically all of the crime dramas, all of the soap operas, (laughs) Holby City, Emmerdale, Brookside. Yeah. Yeah. All of them. Exactly. So this is a fine art actor reserve in the UK. Morse. We stopped producing actors in the 80s, mm. along with everything else. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, deep cuts here. Um, <laughs> so um, the uh, at this point, we also learn that there's a concurrent investigation also taking place at this bank. Because, as established at the beginning of the episode, £90,000 worth of bonds or something... Have gone missing. Negotiables or whatever. It yeah, is. banking things. Non- banking stuff. Yeah, there's bonds. Yeah, They're not non-secured bonds or something. Securities. I no, I don't think. Anyway, anyway, it doesn't matter. Stuff. We're not bankers. No, no, but these people are. And so, who's there speaking to our friend, the twenty-eight-year-old, forty-year-old Simpson? <laughs> but, um, but Inspector Jap in oh, his first yeah. appearance in the series. And he is talking to Simpson because Simpson knows Davis. Mm-hmm. I think it was Davis. And Davis is a bank employee who vanished on the day that all the money vanished from the bank. And so obviously he is subject, suspect. Or the day after. Or the day after, yeah. yeah. He's suspect numero, numero one. Mm. However, Simpson doesn't know anything about this because Simpson had a cold on the day after when Davis disappeared. Basically, he has an alibi, sort of. But midway through this interrogation, um, 
Simpson is distracted by Poirot. Wait, wait, wait. Before we get to mm. the Poirot distraction, I just want to say that this is another thing where it felt like they they hadn't quite got the characters yet because Jap uses the word conjecture and he would usually just say think. That felt weird. Mm, mm. I don't know why I... Like, <laughs> I'm pulled just up like, on that. And I don't know whether it's in the short story or not because this one is based on... I, I think it is actually relatively faithful to the short story that it's based on because some of them have had a lot mm. of fleshing out or changing or whatever, but I think this one is actually quite faithful. So I'd be interested to go back and see whether that phrasing is actually Japs or whether it was a an odd... Bit of scripting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, Jap peeps up above the kind of office partition to well, see. Simpson recognizes Poirot and he's like, mm. why is that guy here? Yeah, Jap exactly. Jap like instantly turns around, starts craning and you see, <laughs> you see Poirot trying to, he, he sees that Jap sees him and then tries to do the least stealthy, stealthy walk in his spats <laughs> and with his like big coat on. <laughs> so Poirot's means of getting away and avoiding the awkward conversation he's trying to avoid is to walk apparently about six feet to, to the little, right to the Reuters ticker tape machine thing yeah and start intently reading it like <laughs> it's it's basically the 20s equivalent of staring at your phone and like reading a fake text exactly yeah <laughs> and so and then when uh, Jack walks up behind Pyro uh, Pyro just looks tremendously disappointed that he he's look, been caught. Well, he looks so awkward at the camera and then turns around and like feigns surprise, like, Jap, my dear, <laughs> like, oh, I fancy seeing you here. And we see a little bit of the internal struggle of Pyro, which is literally that everyone else is just an idiot that Pyro has to deal with. Because you see, obviously, you know, you have islands of Pyro's sympathy, which is often directed at specific people in a story. And he has his friends, but even his friends, he tends to be very Poirot towards. Well, they're not f- friend friends yet. I think they're acquaintances, but they're not like pally with each other in the way that they become later. Because mm. Jap kind of like is fine cutting him out of things or not speaking to him about things, you know, mm. in this one in a way that he wouldn't be. In yeah, but even series. even when Poirot is friends with people, he does. Oh, he's, he's not a very- catty friend. <laughs> He's not good at being close to people without also delivering the same sort of backhanded compliments you might expect from a slightly sort of, I don't know, cantankerous relative. Mm, he is, he is. Or a cat. He's the, he, <laughs> he is a cat. He's a human cat in the much, and that's the thing, right? Pyro is a cat. Hastings is a dog. That is mm. maybe why they both do and don't get on. Mm. Um, but needless to say, Poirot is, is very put out that he's been caught in this way because Jap knows that he's actually investigating a case of a missing domestic. Well, he tries to make it seem like he isn't. He says it's a case of national importance, which I think, you know, obviously you could rationalise it in some way that way, mm. you know. Uh, you could bend the truth in so, like, only so far. Um And to be fair, he is at the bank, so but he tries to make it out as if he's not investigating something as mundane as what Jap's investigating. But then Jap kind of catches him out on that by sort of saying, oh, I heard you were investigating a cook, you know, I'm glad to hear you haven't fallen that far then, or that the rumour <laughs> wasn't true. And so it's kind of an interesting, you know, his his um, his vanity and his snobbery is... I think that's a better word for Poirot, it's his vanity. Mm. 
Yes. So I, I, and I think maybe going back, that's possibly what happens in the thing that gets him to take the case is that she wounds his, his vanity, his like image of himself as a, as a man who will, you know, who won't just write off an actual valuable human being or a good meal provider. <laughs> yeah, know? indeed. Yeah. Like yeah, she sort of manages to like pierce that particular bit of him, but then his, his vanity kind of in terms of how the world sees him reasserts itself. And he's like, Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pyro is obviously perturbed that he's been caught out in this way because his vanity, as you say, has been, has been wounded. Mm. So he does what Pyro tends to do, which is go to bed. <laughs> And um, Pyro going to bed is a wonderful thing. This is the first time we see Pyro in his Pyro pajamas, which are usually as elaborate a suit as he, he wears. Pajamas, I can't remember. He gets into his night clothes, which is like a full three-piece suit, but made of pajamas. Oh uh, yeah. And then we only see this momentarily because he's just reading in bed. He's cross because, um, despite putting an advert in every single paper asking for this cook to get in touch with him, she hasn't. Oh, is that when he's reading in bed and the phone is very clearly like a watched phone never boils or whatever? Yeah, he's looking mm. at the phone. He's waiting for her to call, but she isn't. So the only recourse is to. Go yeah, to sleep. he's put a like a, an ad in the paper, basically saying, "Oh, you know, I have something of interest for you, Miss Eliza Dunn. Uh, get in touch." And uh, the phone resolutely refuses to ring. And Hastings does that thing of like, you know, when you try and cheer up a pet or a child when you're sort of like dangling fun things in front of them that mm. they might might prefer to do or a fun activity while they're, you know, deep in a grump. And he doesn't want to investigate any of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Power is very put out. Um, but he feels much better the next morning. I love the, I love all the cuts in Pyro where it cuts from him like in bed to up. Mm. Because for the most part, we always skip Pyro getting dressed. Mm. Even though he's immaculately turned out. Well, you sort of usually see the, the edges of him getting dressed. Mm. As in, you know, you'll see him adjusting something or putting, you know, the finishing touches to an outfit or something. Yeah. You know, fiddling with his cufflinks or. He's always perfecting something, but not ever doing the. I mean, that's just him anyway, because he is that fastidious that he's always picking, you know, lint off things or straightening something or whatever. But um, I can't remember seeing him actually getting dressed unless, unless it's like, I think he's, hmm, I'm trying to remember if that happens in the episode where he gets... He's on an island. Anyway, anyway, it doesn't matter. We'll we get might to see that. it later we'll on. Get to that. Um, but in the morning, Pyro mm. gets good news. He's easy he is grumpy. Hastings is trying to entertain him. Mm. But then Miss Lemon bursts in with a letter from the cook, <gasps> which says that she's obviously alive and well and mm. living in Keswick in mm. the Lake District, uh, which uh, Pyro neither knows how to say nor where it is. No, but, uh, the, the letter does say, uh, I'm fine actually. Cheers for your message, but I've, I got my legacy. Ooh, mm-hmm. what could that refer to? So he makes up his mind instantly to go to, as he says, Keswick, mm. wherever that is by train, because whatever. Yeah. And they're going <laughs> to just go catch that train, even though he, at I that no point. No idea when it is. No idea when it is. No idea which station it <laughs> would leave from. Like, he just says, to, he says to Miss Lemon, like, Miss Lemon, is there a train? She goes, oh, well, of course. And he goes, come, Hastings, we're going now. <laughs> like, we're going to catch a train. <laughs> it's like, uh... And they do. 
And, and immediately Poirot is extremely the unhappy about this. awful <laughs> wasteland that yeah. is the Lake District. Yeah, Poirot is, is not a country mouse and he is very, very perturbed by by the Lake District, one of Britain's most beautiful natural wildernesses, um, where he perceives no, no trees, no flowers, not even a public house. <laughs> that struck me as weird as well, because Poirot's not a big fan of the public house. No, but it's better. I imagine it's better to Pyro than nothing at all. That's very true. Like he, I think he quite likes to scoff at a rustic public house where the beds are a little bit too hard and the food is not as to his taste. But he'd prefer that than the true kind of rough and wild of the British countryside. Mm. If you know what I mean. Oh yeah, he's no, almost at his happiest not... when he's being a little bit snobby about well, someone's roast. I mean, at least at a public house, he would be able to wear his spats without, you know risking getting sheep poop and, and yes. mud on them which is more than can be said of keswick <laughs> yeah so yes having dismissed the uh the the lake district as a wasteland he then finds himself in with hastings walking across it oh hastings is being amazingly and determinedly british and and yeah. wholesome about it all he's like oh, breathe in all that air and the wonderful outdoors what a glorious day stopping about <laughs> wearing the right clothes and Poirot says the lungs of Hercule Poirot require something more substantial than this the town yeah exactly <laughs> he misses the town already and again this is the thing right Hastings has been taken for a good long walk, as he's very, very happy to. He isn't chasing the sheep, though. That's he isn't good. chasing the sheep. He's a good boy, Hastings. He is ultimately <laughs> and and enduringly a good boy. Whereas Pyro is like, yeah, the house cat you've just dropped in a mud patch, and he's not very he's happy about it. He's such a Siamese cat. He is. He really is. He's a fancy, fancy cat. He is a fancy cat, and who likes he's not only the this. the best like tuna from the tin. <laughs> um. And he's very unhappy about the field. He's very unhappy. And it is a gorgeous view as well. It's worth stressing. This isn't like... For a rock. Down in the muck. If you are a rock. Oh, yes. It's a, it's a beautiful view if you are a rock. <laughs> um, but they find they, they find the cook living in a little cottage in Keswick. Obviously, Pyro thinks it's horrible. <laughs> he also sort of thinks that someone else owns it. Which yes. is, you know... He does apologise for that. But it's, you know, the assumption mm. is that she has... He, he sort of still doesn't really get why she's there and then when she explains that she actually owns the house and you know so on and so on um mm. he asks her to tell the whole story of what has happened and she reveals that, have a flashback sequence yeah that she actually in the story that she knows she came into some money via a sort of a friend of an aunt or something from australia and um or rather an inheritance and uh, the inheritance is the house that she had to take possession of immediately but the the caveat was that she she couldn't be in domestic service so you know she basically quits her job and moves up to keswick kind of immediately mm. and the guy says that he will deliver a letter and um send her things on to her and apparently has sent her things on to her, but without the trunk that she, mm. that is, that is hers. Everything's wrapped up in paper. Yes. So there are two, there are, yeah. So that's the principal clue here is that she did get her things, but not in the trunk that everyone else thought they had been sent in. The bigger thing here though is in the flashback where we see her have tea with the mysterious Australian lawyer who informed her that she'd come into this. An, Mr. Crockett? Mr. Crockett. Mr. Crockett. Mr. Crockett, the Australian lawyer. Um, who informs her 
in a very bad Australian accent that uh, she's come into this inheritance that she wasn't expecting from relatives she didn't know. She needed to leave immediately. She needed to do this, that, and the I other. I don't think anything real in Poirot has ever come from Australia. It's no, always like it's always <laughs> Australia. Some nonsense happened that wasn't real. Yeah, Australia doesn't exist. And the other thing that's wonderful about this is Crotchet is extremely clearly Simpson in a bad wig and fake beard. There's there's no getting away from that. It's our 40-year-old, 28-year-old friend from earlier, mm-hmm. and he has a wig and a beard and some giant glasses now. And he's kind of... And she's been cooking for him for the duration yeah, exactly. of his stay. She's known the... him for years. <laughs> well, I don't know years, but well, like, yes, you know. for as long as he's been living there. Yeah. And he, <laughs> she has no idea. And he is sort of reverse um, she's American... She's very stupid, though. Yes. Or, you know, mm. credulous, at least. Yeah. Um, she's a Hastings. Yeah, um, she is. And... Um, and he she, he has successfully apparently like well either Clark Kentified himself or either like um, reverse American teen high school drama beauty makeovered himself where he's gained shit hair and huge glasses and now is completely unrecognizable to everybody <laughs> and a hat and he's he's not wearing a hat he was he takes but it initially off in yeah he does take it cafe. off yeah yes you're right and he's got on an, an, <laughs> an, an unconvincing Australian <laughs> accent. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know. <laughs> um, so anyway, so things are probably becoming clear to you now, the reader, a viewer at this point, uh, as they have also become clear to Hercule Poirot. Mm. Um, for on the, the, there's a brilliant, so this episode is interesting because, uh, Poirot doesn't actually get his later traditional big drawing room scene where everyone comes together. Like every person in the episode comes together into a room for Poirot to explain it all. There are kind of two scenes where Poirot does his, Pyro explaining mm. and the first of them is now because Pyro and Hastings rush back to London on the overnight train and on the train a completely incredulous Hastings who has picked up on none of the subtleties of anything oh he's so good lists the facts as Hastings understand them back to Pyro which is that there was an Australian man and and he must be related somehow and Hastings and Pyro just looks at him no, he doesn't even look, does he? He's got his eyes closed for most of it. Yeah. Just like in absolute. <laughs> and, um, and he says like, well, we haven't, it doesn't, he, um, I can't remember exactly what it is that Hastings said, although there is a kind of, um, implication. There's a lot of sort of shut up Hastings type glances. Mm. Um, but, um, I can't remember exactly what it is Pyro says, but Hastings sort of, he says something like, um, you know, we've, I think we've met this Australian already or something like that. And Hastings sort of looks away and I'm like, well, we haven't. So I don't know what you could possibly mean. And he looks away for like a minute and Hampire closes his eyes and pretends to be asleep. And Hastings goes, what if it was Simpson in disguise? It's, yeah, and Pyro just smiles. Like the whole thing is just a masterclass in being slow on the uptake. Uh, yes. He's so sorry. He doesn't think someone would disguise themselves. That would be dishonest. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pyro, uh, has already at this point phoned ahead of Scotland Yard to tell him to arrest Simpson. Um, but they arrive in Clapham Common the next morning to find that in, in the words of someone, I think the Bobby on the beat, they're not very popular in Clapham at all. Mm. And this is because uh, a hat lady bursts out of a window, basically. She sort of leans out of the front window in the manner of Hyacinth Bouquet, mm. or, you know, like so, some sort of affronted... Uh, yeah, it... <laughs> and so she, you know, she's very upset because the police are trampling all over her house, but Simpson has gone to stay with his parents in Shropshire, which everybody believes. <laughs> 
Well, also, she she was like, but we paid you off, you know. With a guinea. Exactly. We paid you handsomely. And he's like, well, actually. <laughs> and decided to do this anyway. But yeah, and that's, that's the point where Jap kind of like closes the door on him, you know, which I, I think wouldn't happen further into their relationship. Mm. Um, yes. But in the same way, at least. He might sort of... Roll his Stop eyes. listening to him or whatever, but he he isn't as prone to just sort of essentially cutting him out. Mm. But then he sort of does a little does a little skip and then goes down to see goes down to see Annie. Yeah. So Pyro yeah decides to get his information elsewhere and sneaks off down to the kind of basement entrance to the kitchen, which is where Annie is working. Well, no, it's well he goes downstairs and just taps on the window, doesn't he? Yeah, but it does it does seem like a little instance of Pyro stealth because he just sort of sneaks. I would have been terrified if someone comes to the window. I mean, if you come into the kitchen too quietly, there's a scream. And this happens every day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it <laughs> runs in my family as well. My sister does it too. Mm. So, mm, mm. But anyway, so... Uh, <laughs> Not but, good stealth detection skills for war family. Well, no, but a great response. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you skip to the end. Yeah. The, <laughs> shrieking. Whereas Annie, she's just like, oh, hi. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly, because he sort of You're pops right. up over the windowsill, his friendly little manic pixie Belgian face. And, yeah. um, and she's perfectly, she's delighted even. She, she leans in, well, she kind of punches her shoulders. Nice to her. Yeah, he was, yeah, he was. And so, you know, opens the window. They have a little chat about, you know, the address that was on the trunk. Mm. She actually gives him some useful information because, you know, this is the whole thing about why he's nice to, or, you know, why I think it might partly be transactional, but also, you know, mm. human to be nice to. The help. <laughs> and then and she's so cute. She tries to say au revoir and he's impressed and it's all very sweet. And then he like hops up the stairs again. Yeah. There's some, there's some interesting things here. So she, she stresses two things. One is that, uh, the cook's trunk, which we know the cook didn't receive, was very heavy. Mm. And very heavy trunks in, in a, in a murder mystery of any kind only indicate one thing. Mm. Which yes. Is, um, and Aparo picks up on that. The other thing is that she knows that the trunk was sent to Glasgow. No, it was oh, for she... Twickenham Station. Oh, so that it, it was for Twick- Twickenham Station. I think the only reason that stuck out to me is because that is also potentially a clue to where the cook went. And it's sort of weird that she didn't bring that up earlier. That was just, mm. just a thing. Um, but obviously. Well, she was too preoccupied with the tinned peaches or whatever it was. That's true. Tinned there was a whole tinned peach diversion mm. earlier in the, in the episode that we didn't, we didn't touch on at the time. Either way, it never came up again. So what are you going to do? But at that point, we do go to Twickenham Station where we meet the greatest extra. The porter. The catty porter. He's he's the one that I think shows up in a later Poirot and also... I don't... I can believe it because he was a fabulous extra. He milked that role. all of the other British dramas of any daytime calibre and some evening. <laughs> I don't know how often we're going to do, you know, do our Little Grey Cells episodes, hopefully regularly, but if we have to bring in extra of the week extra of the month extra of the episode he was pretty great i think he's i think he's our mvp i think, I he's think our extra he would have episode. been our mvp even if he hadn't had a speaking role just how poirot is ringing on the porter um like window yeah and um he lifts the blind and he's just there sort of drinking tea in the most angry fashion possible. he is he's he's aggressively sipping it and the best thing is in the next scene he's obviously taken pyro and hastings through to the luggage room where 
the parcels get sent from and he's still angrily drinking this mug of tea in exactly the same way and he's very dismissive of both pyro and hastings in a way that makes pyro engage and hastings look kind of lost and sad um, well no hastings starts to get pissy with him yeah and to which his response they start is getting a bit feisty with each other i'm talking to the engineer not the oil rag he says dismissing <laughs> hastings as pyro's oil rag which is amazing. Yeah, those two, those two need their own spin-off show, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, but so this guy, and this guy has, has done his own little bit of detective work. He gets quite a lot to do for an extra, I think, actually. So he forwarded the trunk onto Glasgow, right? Mm. That's one of the things that he imparts. And the other one is some, is, is what's revealed after Poirot's bit of, super obvious flattery mm. when he absolutely fails to respond to some sarcasm that was the most obvious sarcasm in the universe and the man is essentially like oh well i guess if you think i'm being genuine and and this isn't sarcasm i will tell you my, <laughs> my deductions <laughs> which is like i mean sure fine that's great um and it's that the the person who forwarded the trunk on is off to bolivia mm. because it was written on the banknotes yeah he was clutching so yes the, the when when he was paid by this this mysterious parcel gentleman who was wearing an obviously fake beard um incidentally i forgot to mention um pyro has figured out the fake beard thing because when he met simpson for the first time he clearly had gum arabic Stuck his in his sideburns. in his sideburns, which is why he asked him about the theatre and so on and so on and so on. Isn't he clever? Our special Belgian boy. Um, I mean, you could have just got like marmalade on your cheek. You could have done. I mean, you could have done. Gum Arabic, marmalade, glue of any kind. I mean, we're talking about Hercule Poirot here. He's not going to make that mistake. No, but what I'm saying is I could have stuff on my face. It doesn't mean that I've been dressing as an Australian and handing out legacies that don't exist, do I? <laughs> you know, it's just that I missed my face with the marmalade. I feel like this this interpretation of this part of the episode says more about you than it does about... I'm just saying that as deductions go, that's one of the more tenuous. Mm, it's a leap, but he's good at those little leaps and bounds. Mm. Um, but yes, so when he paid, when, when this parcel was paid for, the guy was also apparently holding a load of Bolivian notes, which the guy picked up on because they said Bolivia on them, mm. uh, which is in response to a query by Hastings, who's at least trying to look like he's paying attention. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's paying attention. He just doesn't get much out of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> G- cut to at this point. Pyro, Hastings, and Miss Lemon all reading one giant newspaper. It's the Times. It is, yeah. You know, broad sheet. It's a broadest sheet, though. Mm. It's a broad-ass sheet. Mm. And uh, from which they're kind of determining um, boat times to figure out when the next time this person could escape. Do you think broadsheets would mean you got bigger portions of fish and chips? Yeah, that's how you order fish and chips. No, it's not. You get a tabloid if you're only, like, if you're eating for one. If you get a Berliner, then it's, like, somewhere in between. Yeah, and then you get a broadsheet if you're really hungry or feeding a small family. (laughs) That's true. You get a zine if you Mm. want hipster fish and chips. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Covered in glitter. Mm. Yeah, you can get a Beano for the kids. Anyway. Anyway. Um, And, um... 
They're looking up ship times. Yes, so they can determine which boat this person's going to escape on. They settle on a, a, a like a, a one a.m. ship to Bolivia. The SS what Navaria or something? Yeah, um, from Southampton. However, also leaving from Southampton is the Kingdom of Heaven or something like that. Queen of Heaven. Queen of Heaven, um, which is going to Caracas, um, and. Um, and Miss Lemon brings this up in a sort of like, oh, don't these ships have lovely names kind of way? And obviously Poirot dismisses this as irrelevant and possibly a stupid thing to have said immediately. He's basically like, oh, it's so frivolous. We're not going to Caracas. We're going to Buenos Aires. <laughs> because, and oh, that's also because uh, Hastings made a stupid observation that nothing's going to Bolivia and, you know, like <laughs> no ships are going to Bolivia and Poirot's like, it's landlocked. So, Hastings. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but um, Poirot then does go to see Jap with his findings. Um, and Jap is astonished to believe that this is apparently a murder case now. Well, it's because the only possible thing that can be in a heavy trunk that is human-sized in a detective show is going to be a body. Mm. That's just, that's the only thing. It's never going to be, like, 80 oranges. No. And this is also when we get our second kind of Poirot speech. Well, the other thing is, though, because it's been... It's been a few days, right? It's been about mm. a week. That yeah, body week. would have putrefied or started to putrefy by then, right? Well, yeah, because she doesn't, he, he, Pyro isn't, let's figure this out, because Pyro isn't contacted by Hat Lady until I think he says like two days after the fact. Yeah, it would have been like Friday. Cause yeah. She went missing on the Wednesday. Yes. So let's Craig David this. So she went, <laughs> she went missing on, she went missing on Wednesday night. Missing on Wednesday. Okay. Simpson <laughs> stayed at home with a cold on Thursday. <laughs> she went to Poirot on Friday. He yeah. investigated Saturday, Sunday. Monday, he chilled. And he chilled on he Monday. He waited watching the phone, I guess. <laughs> exactly. He waited watching the phone on Saturday, Sunday. Then he chilled. So at the very, I think it's Monday. Yeah, the body's going to have started to decompose unless it's cold and dry, right? Yeah, but one thing that's very quickly established is because uh, Jap just phoned the Glasgow parcel and office or something. And there will have been a certain relaxing of the muscles. Yeah, he full-on shit himself. Mm. Oh, yeah, you got to believe it. And um, But Jap, do, Jap does ring the parcel office, and this cuts to a shot of um, some officers in Glasgow. Oh, they're so great. It's like, you're looking for a human-sized trunk, and they look for it in, like, the <laughs> you smallest You just see this man pick parcel. up what looks like a kind of wicker envelope, and it's like, is this it? <laughs> like, no. And then it's almost like, I found it, and it's like, yes, it's the giant trunk that smells like a dead body. <laughs> and he says, oh, we can't open this. We don't have a... We don't have a I, warrant. We don't have it's a like, warrant. Well, and then Jap goes back on the phone, it's like body in it right <laughs> anyway long story short surprise surprise there is a body in it and mm. it's the body of davis the missing bank employee because it turns out well, obviously pyro has now done his speech to jap but what's actually happened simpson stole the money from the bank invited davis to his house killed him put him in a truck well, put him in the cook's trunk yeah then paid the cook pretended to be an australian paid the cook to move to the lake district i think that he paid the cook before he invited davis round right that's that's the timing that's unclear to me. I think he would have done it on the Wednesday evening after he'd stolen. Let's Craig David this as well. No, because <laughs> she needed to be up there by noon the next day, so he hustles her out that evening. So he would have like mm. so anyway. Right. Yes, that's true. Okay. Right. Yes, anyway, planned this very well. Yes. Anyway, so they rush to the docks, but then surprise, surprise, the ship that they think he's on isn't running that night. Or for the foreseeable future. Yeah, so it can't be that boat. Poirot has made a mistake, but no, 
Poirot then realizes he hasn't made a mistake. He's just been differently correct about it's something. It's the porter who made the mistake. <laughs> yeah. He thought he was being well clever reading the word Bolivia. But it wasn't the word Bolivia, was it? Because that's not what you write on money. <laughs> it was Bolivar, which we is the currency of Venezuela. Which means that ship to Caracas that someone Stop unimportantly that mentioned earlier. Well, he was just like, I read it in the Times. I was like, no, you didn't. Miss Lemon Miss said Lemon it. I love it. that he completely out of hand forgets. I don't think he dismisses Miss Lemon. I think he forgets where he well, saw this that. This is like um, in Game of Thrones when, what's her name? Um, Gilly like read something oh, yeah. massively important and sam's just like oh yeah uh shut up now stop talking <laughs> and then and then like a few episodes later passes it off as his own discovery it's like mate no <laughs> not cool he totally gillies her he does gilly her nonetheless they're sufficient to get to the, the right ship in time where pyro can't see the suspect but does just bellow simpson yeah. No, he does see him. He, oh. he squints into the darkness, sees him. And then, like, instead of running down, you know, going down and getting closer before they spook him, just shrieks into the night. Yeah. And then relies on two sailors to so stop this that is, man. But this is a running theme of Pyro, which is that when caught, your average British upper class person won't run more than about 10 feet. Like, they... They tend to, and this is one of the greatest subtexts of Pyro. No, they do. There's been a fair few of them. It's more that, like, I'm always surprised by the willingness of people standing nearby to actually stop that man. I well, don't think if I shouted stop that man, anyone actually would. Well, it's, you know, there are, there are reliable parasailers in this case, but what I'm saying is, you know, even, I mean, how many, like, so if you, I'm not going to go on this, uh, the digression because I'm sure we will hit this point again and again and again in Pyro, mm. but if you'd done a murder, and the most famous detective in the world says, join me in a dining room where I identify the murderer. <laughs> would you go to that dining room? Or would you take that as your opportunity to run the fuck away? Well, I think it tends to be that they assume that they've got away with it by then. Because Poirot mm. has usually been doing a bit of hand-wavy subterfuge, pretending to be dumb, you know. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying, though, is that they don't try very hard to escape in a lot of cases. Well, Occasion I mean, very, very occasionally. Yeah, but sometimes they've done something for the inheritance, which is an enormous house. And it's like, well, I mean... Yes, but you still, well, but this leads me to my other point, which is that everyone who Paro catches in Paro will die by hanging. Well, no, that's not true. I think this guy's dead. I mean, yeah, but, I mean, but, but as a, as a sweeping statement, that doesn't work, as I know. Okay. Yes, there are <laughs> going to be exceptions. The vast majority of the, the criminals that Pyro catches yeah, are I get off your to the gallows. That they should, you know, run faster more, or further. More enthusiastically more. is what I'm but saying. But like, uh, you know, also he, he did start trying to run. It's just that he happened to run straight into two sailors who were going to do Jab's bidding. That's true. Yeah. Fair enough. I guess, I guess I want to put them all side by side. I just don't, I don't buy it. Sailors I, are strong. They are strong. The that's one, that's one the of the things we've learned. The uniforms are very misleading. Mm, yeah. Yeah. You think you're in, you know, I don't you think know. you're in a musical. And yet, mm. they're very strong. Yeah. Sailors, they're very strong. It's one of the many things we learned from this episode, this very first episode of Pyro. Um, this is obviously the resolution of the, the crime. The criminal's been caught. He's mm. going to die now. Um, and, um, but Pyro, to celebrate, has Miss Lemon <laughs> hang up his check for one guinea. Yes. 
to well mm, so this whole thing is that it like reminds him to not be dismissive basically and you know even a tiny yes silly case as he puts it never to despise the trivial which is a way of describing the case of a missing woman. <laughs> but the other thing is, is that he's all kind of pleased with himself about all of this and that he's, you know, he's somehow done good things and stuff. And in a broad sense, he's solved the murder and solved the cases and all of the, you know, the massive sum of money that went missing and all of that stuff and tied it all up in a neat bow. But at the root of it all is this cook who then he says, oh, you know, I'd be surprised if that place had more than a six-month lease on it. She thought she had her legacy. She thought she didn't have (laughs) to be a cook anymore and and be in domestic service and that she could actually spend her time in the beautiful bit of the Lake District having a nice time. And then, you know, Poirot's sort of lesson in humility doesn't actually extend to this poor woman having her her future ripped away from her <laughs> you know <laughs> all in all a happy ending and Paro oh. learns an important lesson <laughs> i feel like maybe as we've described it we've made Paro sound like a little bit of a tiny monster i think in these early episodes he's a lot less nuanced he's a lot more of a kind of comedic mm. character and i think to be honest that's the the um the way that Miss Lemon and Inspector Jap and uh Captain Hastings function maybe is more as foils to that because otherwise he'd just be sort of silly and mm. unlovable, if you see what I mean. Yes, he is still lovable despite being extremely poirot. Because mm, he's kind of he's eccentric at that point, but mm. but they all clearly really like him, and or you know, um, oh, just do what he says. <laughs> and Hastings do; they kind of have this relationship. Mm. Whereas I think if it was just him, it would all be a bit bit weird, mm. or you know, it wouldn't really have anything to anchor to it. Whereas later in in later seasons, he's more able to be his own character and sort of you know there are a few other foils or um contrasting characters or companions who drift in and out you know one Mm. of my favorites is ariadne oliver Mm. um but yeah so and his valet george Mm. yeah we're really missing the full pyro extended universe oh i'm interested to see how it rounds out because i've seen all of them before but not Mm. well i know there are better episodes coming this season as well I'm very much looking forward to getting to Trouble at Sea mid this season, I think. Hmm. Which I think is one of my favourite slightly wonky episodes of Pyra. Have we seen that one together? Yeah, we have. That has an amazing extra. I know exactly who is going to be the extra of the week for that episode. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So much so that I might gif it (laughs) if I can find the files. Oh, I really should start doing a Hastings gif of the week. Hmm. Well, well, for the ones where he's in it. He's not in every single one. In any case, that, that wraps up season one, episode one, The Adventure of the Clapham Cook. Mm. Did you like it? I did. I like all Pyro episodes, I think, because I just like Pyro as a character a mm. lot. And the more time you spend with him, the more you want to be him, I think. 
Do you not agree? Maybe I say you. What I mean is me. I think you would be better at impersonating him. (laughs) (laughs) And after we've watched too many episodes, you do end up um, just sort of mimicking his mannerisms in ways (laughs) that I... (laughs) Now, now, let's not get too personal in this podcast. We can get to that later episode. Um, Because I I do think that you sort of, you actually like him to that extent. If you see Mm. what I mean, like you, you do pick up on those things and you do start you know, holding yourself differently or talking slightly differently. It's really <laughs> I just, interesting. I like how uh, how extremely uh, fastidious he is about everything. I like that he lives in his own little world and everything else is clearly not meeting his standards at all times. Like, his fastidiousness is... <laughs> yeah, he... Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's legendary. It's actually, yeah, they, they incorporate it in some... Inch- or sh- Agatha Christie incorporates it in some interesting ways Mm. in like just, yeah. Um, Almost specifically, I like that the show doesn't indulge him in that. Like he's not correct. You know what I mean? It's not like he has a a privileged view of the world that everyone else lacks. Mm. It's, he is. He's really annoying sometimes. Exactly. Right. That's, that's what I admire about him so much, but I kind of still, despite that, would quite like to be Poirot. (laughs) 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 Which I'm sure is the theme we're going to return to. When we take our next trip back to 1989. Indeed. <laughs> you come to the Crate and Cribble for something. I bet it's almost 30-year-old television. <laughs> but yeah, join us next time we do this for Season 1, Episode 2. Do you know which one it is? No, I just occurred I can't to remember. It just occurred to me that would be a great thing to look up, but I didn't. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hastings lays an egg. (laughs) (laughs) Episode two, Hastings lays an egg. (laughs) Bye. Bye Bye-bye.